Our first scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Again, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, though through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is the word of the Lord. Many of you, uh, do you remember 1983? Many of you remember 1983? If you don't, that's okay. I, I, I was pretty young, but I barely do. I, bar- I, can, I can remember uh, 1983 a little bit. Um, one thing I do remember uh, is, is a movie with a very young Matthew Broderick called War Games. Who remembers War Games? Does anybody remember? Okay. So um, at the time, I didn't really understand the concept about the movie, but basically what it was, um, there was this nu- like nuclear war almost happened, right? We're right in the middle of the Cold War. All the movies of 83 were great. Uh, Cold War movies, a lot of them in that time, right? Rambo and all of those, Red Dawn, all those kind of movies were, were about the Cold War. So, uh, but this one is as well. And it's, a, there's a computer malfunction. I'll, I'll save you a little bit of, of if you haven't seen it. Um, computer malfunction almost starts uh, nuclear war. Uh, the United States almost starts launching all its missiles at the, United, uh, at the Soviet Union uh, because of a kind of a computer programming error. Um, 1983 was an intense year um, in, in the world. If you remember the politics of that year, there was kind of, there was a lot going on. Um, and I, and I want to tell you something amazing that happened. It, it was something that we didn't know happened for a really long time uh, because, you know, because of the Iron Curtain and all that stuff. But we found out uh, much later about this story. Uh, and the story starts with a man his name was Stanislav Petrov, and I don't speak Russian, so forgive me. Stanislav Petrov. He is the most important man that you've never heard of. Um, we only know his story that came out years after the collapse uh, of the Soviet Union. So here's kind of the short story, right? Stanislav Petrov is an important man. He's a, uh, a Soviet officer whose job is to monitor uh, the skies for attacks against, from the Americans. That's his, you know, he sits in front of a really big monitor that has all kinds of things telling him what to do. Um, and so there he is working one night, and it's September 26th, 1983. He's sitting at his panel there, and it starts blinking and flashing. And in Russian, it says the word launch, launch, launch. It keeps flashing that word, launch. 
Stanislav's computer has detected five nuclear missiles coming towards the Soviet Union. And he's the only man that has that information at this moment. Seeing this, Stanislav's job was to pick up a red phone. And that red phone uh, was to only be used in times of nuclear attacks. And, and so picking up that red phone was an indicator to the other person on that end that it was time to launch. And, and, and so the system wasn't designed for them to have long conversations, you can imagine, right? Seconds count in this thing. And so if Stanislav picks up this phone, it would have been the start of the launch of the Soviet Union. It would be the start of what you and I would call Armageddon. Now, Stanislav knew his job. He'd been trained to do it. It was his only job. That was what he knew he was supposed to do. And so he was ready for that responsibility. And so he's staring at his screen. He knows exactly what's supposed to happen. But as he goes to pick up the phone, he thinks to himself, it's kind of weird that the Americans only launched five nuclear weapons at us. You would think if they were going to launch weapons at us, they would have launched bunches. You know, we had 23,000 nuclear weapons uh, or missiles at that time in 1983. The Soviet Union had 34,000. Um, so for us to have only launched five, in his mind, he thought was odd. They should have sent more. And so he stops. And against all his training, against all his regulations, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit for a minute. I'm going to wait. And after a few minutes, nothing happened. Nothing happened. There was no impacts. And it turns out uh, the radar had confused some sunlight bouncing off clouds as nuclear, nuclear launches. Later, Stanislav uh, would tell people in interviews, right, once he got out of the Soviet Union, that he knew it was the most important moment of his life. And he was making essentially a 50-50 choice. He was 50% right, but he, he might have been 50% making the wrong choice, right? It was either yes or no to, to pick up that phone. And it's interesting. Uh, Petrov died in, in 2017, um, but, but many during his life, many organizations have honored him, and he was given the, the nickname, the man who saved the world. Uh, it's uh, unlikely that, that most of us would be here if it wasn't for the decision that he made, as strange as that sounds, the decision that that guy made in 1983 uh, probably impacts all of us still to this day. Um, and this morning, we're going to read about the most uh, important moment, the most important decision in another man's life, and his name was Nehemiah. We'll, we'll, we're going to see his incredible decision that he makes in faith. H have you ever been in a situation where you thought, this is probably the most important moment of my life? Have you ever been in that place? Did you recognize the gravity of that situation? This may be the most important thing that I do. This might be my most important decision. What did you do? How did you respond? And that's our question this morning. How do we respond in important moments? So let's pray together. Father, would you help us this morning to see your word? Would you help us to see your truth? God, would you equip us? Would you fill us with trust and hope? 
who you are, not in ourselves, but in who you are. Guide us now in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in Nehemiah chapter 2, and we're going to read that whole chapter. So it's before the Psalms, it's after the Kings and Chronicles. Nehemiah 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked for, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent with me officers of the army and horsemen. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. So I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. And I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. I went out by day by the, to, by the valley gate to the dragon spring and to the dung gate, and I ex- inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up in the night by the valley and inspected the wall, and I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, and I, and I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. And then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been doing upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sambalat the Hornite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem the Arab heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Are you rebelling against the king? 
And then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we his servants will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. So last week we began a series in Nehemiah. And we learned that the the temple... uh, Jerusalem, all of it had been destroyed in 586 B.C. And, and seven, about 70 years later, the Israelites returned and, and finished rebuilding the temple. And that would have been in 516 B.C. But things are still bad uh, for, for those exiles who returned. Um, part of this is because... Um, there were these other groups of people that had been allowed to take over the land once the Jews had been kicked out. So just imagine, you know, the city and, and kind of the area, everybody has to leave. And the Babylonians said, hey, anybody who wants to go live there, sure, you can take it over. So they took over whatever houses were left and farming their land and, and all of that. And so for the exiles to come back, there's going to be problems, right? Whose house is it? Whose house is it? Uh, so you can imagine, these groups don't want the Jews back, and, and this is a, a problem. This is going to be a big problem. We think there's about 50,000 Jews at this point in time that are living in the area. Not many are living in Jerusalem because the situation is just so bad. They're mainly living in the countryside around it. Um, if you lived in Jerusalem, you'd have been totally under attack, constantly under threat, um, and, and so, Nehemiah gets to hear this story, right? His, his brother comes back and he tells him, and, and this is all in chapter 1, and he hears how, how bad the situation is. Uh, in the book of Ezra, we see, we see um, that there was the, the building had been stopped by these enemies, because they were, they were starting to do well. Things were, about, were going well in Jerusalem, and, and, and the enemies of, of the Jews wrote and said, hey, they're going to they're gonna rebel. If you, if you let these people keep building, they're going to rebel. And so the, the building got stopped at that point. Um, and, and so this is, this is a big context as we get into Nehemiah, right? Because Nehemiah wants to go back and build the wall, but this is the very wall that they had been told not to build because it would have given them strength. It would have given them the ability to withstand the Persian Empire if they'd ever decided to. So why would the king of Persia allow the Jews to build a wall so that they could defend themselves? Why would you want people that you're controlling and, and ruling over to be able to rebel against you? That's a big part of this, this issue, and, and Nehemiah knows, knows that. So Nehemiah hears about this problem. He's been thinking about it. He's been praying about it. He doesn't know exactly what to do. And that's kind of the whole first chapter. And, and, and he says at the very end, he's the cupbearer to the king. And, and he realizes if he can convince the king that everything will be fine, there's not going to be a problem, maybe there's a chance that he can go and, and rebuild. But if this king, if Nehemiah goes to him and says, hey, let me do this, if the king feels like, he he's, wants to rebuild the walls so that they could have an army and be able to defend themselves. Nehemiah's going to look like a traitor. He's going to look like somebody who wants to rebel against the king. And, and, and Nehemiah knows all of this. He recognizes the problem. He recognizes he's got to be really careful, and so he's going to seek after God's help. If I do this wrong, I, I could die. I could die in asking for help here from this king if I do it in the wrong way. 
so we know that in the beginning of chapter 1 uh, until we start into chapter 2, uh, somewhere between 3 and 5 months. We'll just say 4 for simplicity. And, and this should be a conviction for us. Uh, a, a reminder uh, about maybe our first point for the morning, and, and that was Nehemiah was full of faith. Nehemiah was full of faith. He had the faith to wait. He had the faith to wait. Nehemiah is committed to this problem. He's, he's, we, we talked about it. He was brokenhearted about it last week. And, and it, it didn't just last for a minute. It didn't, it didn't last for a day. He recognized he needed to be committed to this and seek after God. And so he's been praying day and night, he says, for four months before anything happens. Just on his own, by himself, fasting, praying, seeking after the Lord for four months. And so we, we, start, we started our, our, our series kind of talking about that last week, that, that change begins with caring about something. You, there's no change if, if there's no desire, if there's no caring to see anything different. When we just check out, when we're just indifferent, there's no change. Why would there be? And then starting that process, starting to pray. And so he is faithful. He's waiting for God to make some sort of situation possible. There's closed doors all around him. And he, there's, there's really, he would say, nothing I could do in this moment. I work for the king. I'm a servant. I can't go do anything about it. I'm just going to start praying and see if God does anything about it. And so, so chapter 2, we jump right into that action. Nehemiah is praying but he's, he's having to keep those concerns secret. He was, he was not allowed to show emotions in his job. As you can imagine, people would think something is wrong with the wine or the food. He's the cupbearer. That's his job. If he, if he looks sad, if he looks like he's lost weight, if he, something's going to not look right with him. Has he been poisoned? Has the king been poisoned? He can't do that. He was professional. But this day, something is different. And, and I'll just tell you, there's debate about why there was something different this day. Um, whether he was intentionally different today or, or if it just happened. There's debate about that. But the king notices something different. Some say that he was you know, just so worried and just so overcome that it had taken a toll on him. And, and these four months of praying and fasting and being so sad, finally it just it, it was noticeable to the king. Hey, something's not right. But others, others believe that, that Nehemiah was strategic. Because our story says that he was with his king, or sorry, with his queen that night. Um, and this was not normal. The king didn't normally eat with his queen. They didn't have a whole lot of quality time together. Just a different day and age. Um, so this is, a, this is a different night. This is a different time. And, um, and the word they use for queen here is just we'll just say is a different word than is often used for queen. So it may suggest that he was with his girlfriend, okay? So if that's the case, maybe the king is in a better mood than normal, and maybe he's trying to impress this woman. This is, this is just one theory, okay? And so maybe Nehemiah says, hey, now's the chance to hit him up for a favor because he's not going to say no in front of this pretty lady here, right? He's, he wants to impress her for whatever reason. Maybe that's what's happening. Nevertheless, whichever side you think it is, Nehemiah knows that he is in the most important moment of his life. 
right? He was trying not to be noticed. He was maybe, but now here it is. And the king says, hey, something's wrong with you. What is it? And he has to decide, am I going to tell him what's really wrong or I better, better just be honest here. So he says, look, I, things are bad from where I'm from. I'm sad about Jerusalem. And I think it's interesting what he says is about dishonor of his father's graves, right? The graves of his father's. And he doesn't say, well, we really need better defenses so that we can, you know, put up a a really strong defense if we ever need it. That's not what he says. He talks about his hometown is in shambles. His hometown is in dishonor. His father's grave the graves are, are, have been desecrated. And, and he knew that the Persians cared a lot about the dead and the, the, the care of the dead. And so this would actually have been a, a persuasive argument to make to the king of Persia. My, fa- my father's grave has been desecrated. Can you imagine? What a dishonor. He cared about that. So he doesn't want to make the king worry about a possible revolution, a possible rebellion. He's just going to share this peace sounds like he's being a little strategic there. And here comes this moment, right? The king says, what do you want me to do? And now he knows he's really in the most important moment of his life. Because depending on what he says, he could die. He could die if he says this in the wrong way. If it's taken in the wrong direction, this is a big, big moment. So this brings us to our uh, point number two. The first was he had the faith to wait. And the, the second point is that he had the faith to ask. And it it took a lot of faith for him to do what he's about to do here. I I love that Nehemiah says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. (laughs) He asked me what I wanted, and I prayed to the God of heaven. This would have been one of those, maybe you've had these in your life, just an all-time short prayer, just a Hail Mary. God, help me. (laughs) God, please, now's the time. If you're going to do something, this would be the moment. Father, please help. So Nehemiah chooses faith. He says that all these doors have been shut. This is the first chance at a door even creaking open. God, help me. I'm going to take this. That This is what you moving in this moment. And he chooses faith. He has the faith to ask. Now, I'm sure that Nehemiah has planned this and rehearsed this numerous times. And, and, and so he knows already the answer that he, he wants to give. The question is, am I going to have the guts to bring it up? Do I have the guts to, to, to do this? So he says, well, since you asked, king, may you live forever, I'd like you to send me to Jerusalem so I can rebuild it. He says, send me, send me. And, and then he's not done. It's, it's amazing. Once, kind of once he gets that first thing out of the way, now he's really going to go for it. He says, send me. And, and it's interesting that he's actually researched who the, the guy who was in charge of the force was. And so he'd, he'd done his planning. He knew. He said, hey, I need, I need letters to that guy, and I, I need letters to all the places I'm going to pass through so they don't attack us. Like, I need safety to get to Jerusalem. And then he's going to say, I need you to give me. So he says, send me. And now he's going to say, give me. I need these supplies. I need all this lumber and timber, and I, I, I need these letters, and I, I, you're going to have to give me some stuff so I can do this, right? He's, he's not just asked for permission. He's asked, hey, grant me, give me stuff that belongs to you. 
And the king's going to do all of it, and this is incredible. And so I, I just, I'm going to have to move along in this story. Um, it's, it's, it, he says yes, and so now there's the preparations. It takes them a while to get all of, uh, of, of stuff ready, and then they're going to go. They're going to start this journey. And it says that the, the king's going to send them escorts for safety. The journey would have taken at least four months. Uh, the, the place where he's coming from to get to Jerusalem. That's about a four-month journey. He doesn't tell us much about that. He just says that he gets there, and this would have been a, a, a crazy thing, right? Jerusalem is, is in rubble, and then here comes this kind of caravan of the king and all these people dressed well. It would have been a big, big deal for him to show up. But he hasn't told anybody what he's doing yet, and and there, there's a bad situation. Remember the, the conditions we described. The people kind of lost hope, barely surviving, barely scraping by, no vision of what could be. People know something is, is up, but they're not exactly sure what. And so Nehemiah is going to kind of keep this going, and it says he's there a couple of days, and then finally in the middle of the night he's going to get up and he's going to go so he can inspect the walls in secret. And, and I, there's a picture I, I think we've got that I just kind of want to show you just so you can sort of have a little context about, about what we're talking about. There we go. Maybe you can see that. So, so Jerusalem is a whole lot bigger than this little area. It had been way out that way, but it's, those walls had been destroyed, you know, 150 years ago. And, and Nehemiah is going to travel you could just kind of say around that skinny oval and then around the temple is up to the top. There's the, what we call the Temple Mount. And then the, there's the rebuilt, we talked about last week, Zerubbabel's temple, which wasn't near as cool as Solomon's temple, much, much smaller. Um, and so that's there. But so this is what he would have inspected when he says, I, I went out at night. It was just me. He, though there's there's kind of gates. Most of the gates are on the other side of the temple there. But you can see some of those gates, and they've all been destroyed. And it's just rubble just everywhere. And so he's going to kind of take a tour of that. It's about... A, a little less than two miles, that oval, if you want to call it that. Uh, it's about 1.7 miles. So just imagine trying to build those walls, 1.7 miles of them. How in the world is he going to do this? He realizes it's a big deal. It's going to be a huge project. So it says, finally, he's going to summon all the leaders and everyone involved, and he's, he's going to give this incredible speech. We'll read it here. He says, I said to them, you see the trouble that we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision or shame. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words of the king that had been spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. The time has finally come for, uh, for him to share his plans to tell him why he has come, to tell him why he's here. And again, I'm just going to tell you that Nehemiah showed faith. He's had the faith to wait. He's had the faith to ask. And now he's going to have the faith to inspire. You're not going to inspire anybody to change, anybody to action, if you don't have faith in yourself. If people can't see that you believe in this thing, why would anybody else? And so he obviously believes in this, and he says, Guys, let's do this. We've got the ability. Now is the time. He inspires people. And so we'll say he's got the faith to inspire, the faith to challenge others. He's gathered facts. He's done his research. He knows what he's talking about. 
but he's going to have to show his faith. He's going to have to show that he believes in this project, that he's willing to, to put his life to it. And, and so much so that others would want to join him in it. So he has the faith to inspire. And, and the last point I, I just want to make uh, as we wrap this up is, is the humility that Nehemiah shows through all of this. And, and this is part of what I think con- contributes to him being able to have faith. You see, he's got incredible faith, incredible belief in the sovereignty of God. If you look at verse 8, if you notice that, he says, The king granted what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. The good hand of my God was upon me. And then what we just read there in verse 18, he says that the hand of God had been upon him. Nehemiah never takes credit. He's not going to take credit in this situation. He says and lives out this truth that, that God is the one doing all of this. I'm just simply a servant, a cupbearer to the king. I have no power and authority. He's going to be made the governor by the king, by the way. He says, God did all of this. I didn't do anything. God does all of that. So you and I may want change to happen in our lives. We may hope for certain things to take place. But just like we mentioned last week, there's no good that you're going to be able to do on your own. Apart from God, we can do nothing. It tells us in John. Apart from God, you can do nothing. But in faith, we can join with God to do the good work that he wants to do, that he's planning to do. Are we willing to join into his plans, into his good, instead of trying to do something ourselves and and have it be our own thing? What is it that God wants to do, and are you willing to be a part of that? That's what change looks like. And so if you're hoping for change, right, we've talked about in your, in your life, in your family, in, in some relationship, in, in your church, my question first to you is this. Do you really care about it? And if you do, how are you praying? What are you praying? Are you praying about it at all? Are you committed to praying about this thing that you care about? Are you committed? If there's a change you want in your life, are you committed to praying about it? And then my second question is this. After praying, do you have the faith to do something about it? Nehemiah didn't have 100% certainty, right? He didn't get a letter from God saying, hey, this is what I want you to do. Step one and then step two and step three. He didn't get that from God. Nehemiah did a bold thing. He sensed where God might be leading. He was waiting. He was patient. And he said, okay, God, I'm going to go. It looks like you're leading. I'm going to go. But he didn't have 100% certainty. There was faith required on his part to get into motion. And then he was willing to act on faith. We read this morning from Hebrews 11 that without faith it is impossible to please God. I don't think there's anything in your life that has to do with God where you're ever going to be certain that it's going to be perfect, that it's going to work out, that it's going to be exactly like you hope it might be or think it might be. I don't think God gives us those. When you think of the, the people in chapter 11 of, of Hebrews, right, we call that the hall of faith, these, these amazing people who acted on faith, none of them had a, a 100% certainty what was going to happen. God gave them something to pursue, and they had to step out on faith and act on it. We need the faith to be willing to move. Let's pray.
Father, we recognize that without you, we can do nothing. God, would you give us eyes to see you, to see your hand, to see your goodness, to see your sovereignty. Father, that that would bring trust, that would bring faith. Faith that would be bigger than the fears that we have. Bigger than the obstacles, bigger than the things that are holding us back. Our faith in your good hand, the faith that you can do all things, the faith that you can move. God, then give us the faith to follow. Be willing to move after you. In Jesus' name, amen.